Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk, nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today, using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. And now for our feature presentation. so dark. In the beginning, it is always dark. Another world, another time, in the age of wonder. There can be only one. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Hi, I'm Adam Vollerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. What David Lynch calls Eye of the Duck scenes. An Eye of the Duck is a moment or sequence in a film that defines the whole. Each week on our podcast, we explore a movie by finding the scene at its core. At the dawn of the 1980s, with the American New Wave now in the rear view, Hollywood enters a darker age. In this miniseries, we'll track what's come to be called 80s dark fantasy. The audacious, barbaric, and sometimes ill-fated sword and sorcery films that draw from legends as old as language itself. Welcome to Legends of the Eye of the Duck. Well, we did it. Wow, we tr- we, tr- we tracked. We tracked them all. We tracked what's been come to be called 80s dark fantasy. <laughs> This too is now in the rear view. Can't believe it. There's no opening crawl, no uh, terrifying utterance by some wizard or stone knight. There's no, there's no goofy little gremlin here to, uh, right. to be all tricksy with us. I feel like more than our other, well, so, you know, for first time listeners, welcome to Eye of the Duck After Dark. Eye of the Duck After like, Hours. After Hours, yeah. Uh, today we are closing out our 80s dark fantasy miniseries. Normally on an episode, uh, Adam and I talk about uh, a scene that we love from a film, in this case, uh, uh, an 80s dark fantasy film, but we are finished. We're through. 
We did it. We did them all. Yeah. Today we're just going to be unloading our stuff and uh, getting out of here. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll close out and sort of talk about what we've learned during this time. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'll, if you stay till the very end, we'll tell you what we're covering in our next series. It's true. It's true. Uh, it's a rainy day in New York City right now. It's a Sunday, and we're just gonna uh, we're just gonna talk about some some darkness. Maybe some we darkness. might talk about the man known as darkness. I hope we will. I I wanted to start by asking you, sort of like, what is your what is your biggest takeaway from from watching all of these films? Well, on my notes here, I have written uh, the style is the substance. I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. That's that seems to be a new uh, a new tenet that I'm living by. That 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 was kind of a recurring theme during mm-hmm. during this series. It is very funny to me, or not funny, but it's interesting to me that someone as obsessed with David Lynch as you mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. sort of took you until this series <laughs> to start sort of saying the style is the substance because <laughs> Lynch is one of the few filmmakers out there who is so distinct in his style, vibe, aesthetic, and tone that we had to give him his own fucking word to describe it. And the word (laughs) is literally his name. You describe things as Lynchian, you know? So like that that guy's filmography is all, you know, style is substance. Well, uh, this miniseries intersected with the first time that I I heard uh, Paul Schrader say that on uh, on, on WTF, yeah. WTF, so... (laughs) Uh, it was a convergence of things. This type of film, which we had referred to as a genre, or at some point we just started calling it the period. It's, it's not. It's not really a genre. Like fantasy is a genre. Dark fantasy maybe a subgenre. Eighties dark fantasy a subgenre within a time period. Yeah. And I I kind of just started to think of these films as sort of like a flavor or something. Like Yeah. I mean it's a style. It's it's a style. It it is a style, but I think the key thing, you know, we we started off the series sort of listing our requirements for films we were going to cover, you know. It had to have a sword. It had to have a princess. It had to have a, you know, magic that was either present or like referred <laughs> to as having been lost. It you know, if it had a dragon, it didn't need any of the other things because it had mm-hmm. a fucking dragon mm-hmm. in it, you know, all, all these sort of things, but Coming to the end of it, I think that really all that a film has to do to qualify as an 80s dark fantasy film is to just simply be in conversation with George Lucas's 1977 film Star Wars. If your (laughs) film was made in response to that film and like had some vaguely sort of, you know, Star Warsy shit going on, it's an 80s dark fantasy film. It is a film where studios are scratching their heads, learning the wrong lessons and trying to figure out how do we make a Star Wars? I guess you could compare it to all of the attempts right now to replicate these Marvel movies. Right. Um, Which I think at this point they've kind of cracked it. Uh, I don't know because like The Flash just came out and that's That's so clearly an attempt to, despite being based on like a very popular and very specific, you know, comic book event in, in, you know, DC Comics, it is also very much just sort of like they saw Spider-Verse and were like, we need to we need to do that. And I know that film was in development before Spider-Verse, but like it's very clear that they saw Spider-Verse and were like, we need to rethink our entire approach here. Oh yeah, for sure. 
And I know that Spider-Verse is actually part of Sony's universe of Marvel characters and not actually an MCU film, but um, I'm too tired for uh, this already. <laughs> well, I think the Infinity War Avengers Endgame effect too was uh, so profound that people are trying to uh, create something where they can literally revisit and like like self-worship you know their own yeah. prior installments it's kind of like uh what we've talked about off mic about a lot of you know techno uh, technocrats these uh, uh mm-hmm. you know these billionaire um corporate mega leaders whatever they want to create apps where they can you know have their own currency right <laughs> right like, yeah. you know, Elon Musk is trying to do that with Twitter, right? How just keep you on the app to do everything. And then, you know, as you were saying, uh, they can pay their employees in Twitter bucks, right? Right. Like the, these these people that create these these platforms, you know, they want to create a sort of recursive feedback loop of, of you know, cash flow where like, you know, you you are you are paying to use the thing that you are getting paid by, and so you get very quickly into a scenario like like what is depicted in in movies like Idiocracy or uh, <laughs> Sorry to Bother You, where people uh, you know sign up to live in sort of like warehouse housing for the the big mega corporation uh, because they work there and they might as well live there, and you know they get paid in sort of you know uh, just food and water, and then they go <laughs> right to work. You know, it's it feels it feels very much like that, which you know you also see in Ready Player One. You've got the people who are like working off medical debt, which they have bought. You know, it's it's debt they owe to the company that sells the video game because right. it's all one company, you know. Yeah. So in Infinity War or you know especially Endgame, this idea that uh the thing that they can comment on are the the franchise, you know, yeah. the things that they've already shown us, which thus, you know, which then strength strengthens their brand, sells more toys, sells more plastic, you know, amusement park rides. The language of of, you know, filmmaking that exists is like a language that they have invented for themselves, right? <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely. And, uh, and I think what we saw in this period is, you know, in some ways, like the groundwork is being laid through the 80s of, of how to, you know, uh, get to that. But also the last dying embers of, you know, directors trying to make some some real deal, like, artistic statements with yeah. these budgets that they have access to for in some cases the first time you know all of a sudden they have these resources like uh like Walter Murch in Return to Oz right all truly, of a sudden truly he gets, an unreal thing that 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 that, that was allowed to happen <laughs> he gets access to a budget that he has never you know seen before and he decides let me see if i can do it with with the Oz fantasy and let me see if I can create something exciting and uh, and disturbing and and distinct, and it kind of gets uh, shut out because it's it, too it weird. Doesn't, it's too yeah. dark. It's too yeah. too obsessing. Yeah, as 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 many of these these films end up being. Um, when you know, I I think Hook ends up being kind of like a perfect end point for the era when it trans you know we transition into you know sort of 90s you know family films at that point hook reminds me of films that i've seen today because the 
you know, the reviews of the time sort of refer to it as like self-indulgent and, you yeah. know, masturbatory and being, you know, too much about, you know, the filmmaker. And it's, it, it is so funny to me that that, that at that time, like becomes a way that in which they are talking about films and it's still a way people talk about movies today. And on the one hand, like, yeah, I've seen movies where I'm like, wow, that was a fucking wank. But on the other <laughs> hand, like, I don't know, like imagine like looking at a work of art and being like annoyed that it is a reflection of the artist's interiority. <laughs> like, I think you have to be so like, you know, buried under layers of, you know, samey, expected, unoriginal work to walk away from something like wild, weird, different and reflective of someone's psyche to have that response. Yeah. Two things uh, stick out to me about Hook. Um, the first being that, you know, when we arrive at that moment uh, and things really start to change um, and, you know, Hook and and movies like Willow and Neverending Story, I think they really, as we've learned, kind of cement that like these types of movies can can speak to children and that's how to yeah. access like the all four quadrants or whatever. And it's so funny to me that uh, Spielberg makes hook and the rest of the industry shifts towards, you know, making fantasy movies strictly for kids yeah. to great success. But Spielberg shifts away from the kids film and gets dark. <laughs> speaks a lot to like who he is as a filmmaker yeah how strange is that i mean jurassic park comes after hook and and that i think is part of the puzzle of of uh the kinds of gigantic movies that can uh reach massive massive success but yeah i mean from jurassic park from hook from this era spielberg uses that as a springboard towards his sort of later like adult period yeah and, and then we never see the same spielberg again Right, and I would say the the one piece we're sort of missing in that trajectory there is E.T. Because I think E.T. E.T. Yeah. is the one kind of like between Jaws and Close Encounters and Hook where you like see him move into this sort of like family space. Um, I, I think E.T. is like a, feels like subversive in the sense that like it's this like got this goofy family thing in like the E.T. puppet being so kind of like strangely cutesy in how hideous it is <laughs> yeah um but then by the time you get to hook it's just like it's it's on this other level of like trying so hard to get kids hyped while also being so uncomfortable with with that and also with the darkness that it feels is necessary to tell that story yeah and to your earlier point about films being criticized for being self-indulgent and being like too uh, personal to the director. That is, uh, has also been a fascinating thing to explore in this series because I feel like to an extent when a movie gets to be a certain scale today, uh, it can no longer be like a personal film. Yeah. And, and, you know, given that Star Wars is so clearly like, you know, a young George Lucas <laughs> raging against like the structures in place and, and trying to make a kind of, you know, hippie uh, uh, vision for a, a 
a more equitable future for everyone. Um, it's so strange that there's not a single MCU film that has anything to do with a director's personal outlook or anything. I, I right? would I would caveat the the James Gunn Guardian films seems very seem very much sort of like reflective of how he is processing his own personal growth. Um, yeah, that's true. I do. Th- I do think that you know that, he that somehow cracked the code. Somehow, he, I, <laughs> I think he he cracked the code because of all the filmmakers working in that space. For him, like the blank check movies are the Marvel films. I think a lot of other filmmakers who have dipped their toes in that world. Obviously, I can't speak for them, but like it seems to me like they've all sort of recognized this is a necessary stepping stone like in my journey as a filmmaker that like I yeah. must I must at some point do one of these unbelievably massive IP driven films so that I'm awarded the like social and you know political currency to make the other things I'm like most interested in you know the classic sort of one for them one for me thing yeah but, sure but those are the ones for me for for gun <laughs> for gun yeah yeah I mean given the fact that he's taken over the whole uh, DC thing because of his, uh, his passion for this kind of yeah. film. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a good point. Otherwise though, I, I don't know of any like, uh, you know, narrative within any of these MCU movies that is like, you know, I was really feeling this. So I wanted to make this movie about this. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, you're saying, you know, like when a movie gets to a certain size, it's like not allowed to be like that put that personal, right? Yeah. I mean, we just had uh, Bo is Afraid come out. And, you mm-hmm. know, because we now live in a time where like the budget of every movie is a thing that like regular people talk about, which is like so, so <laughs> weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> people were like horrified that that film cost $90 million as though they were going to get some of that cash had it not been spent on that <laughs> film. Um yeah. And it's just I like love that he spent that much money to make that. <laughs> right. Me too. Like I look yeah, at that and I'm like, I can't believe that that he got away with this. That yeah. rules. But people are like, oh, it's just this expensive, you know, self-indulgent mess. And I'm like, no, this is what big budgets exist for, is for like weirdos to like get to yeah. be strange, you know? Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but in light of all that, this year has been really strange i think mm-hmm. that you know the i mean it's sad that mission impossible is already like not part of the conversation anymore given that that movie fucking rocks yeah and also seems to be like weirdly personal to macquarie and Cruz. yeah but the you know barbie and oppenheimer are both two cases of these massive massive movies that like if we were talking about the 2020s as a period like we would talk about these two as like this new thing yeah uh both of them seem you know personal to the directors both of them reached gigantic like unprecedented audiences they both are exploring great you know rich ideas and I can't believe that that those two movies happened and and the ripple effects they yeah. could be very positive. Well, <laughs> I think uh I don't know what lessons one can learn from those uh what I I know what the right lessons are. The right lessons sure. are give interesting filmmakers big budgets. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the right lesson to learn. 
But I think that we already can see that the wrong lesson, which has already been learned Mm -hmm. between Barbie and Super Mario Brothers, is that the future of the film industry isn't superheroes. That shit's over. The future is toys and video games. Yeah. And we know this because Illumination and Nintendo have, you know, you know, sort of implied and announced their intentions to to do more projects together. Mm -hmm. And Mattel has its own you know, studio head now, basically. So, oh no, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, really, the, the, they, yeah. they got themselves a Kevin Feige. I, I mean, there was a, a big interview with the guy that um, is sort of like heading up that operation, and uh, you know, it's it just feels it, it feels like the wrong response. But that's of course how it was always going to be. That's that's how Hollywood works. Um. I mean that's sort of the that's sort of the start of a new '80s dark fantasy movie. That's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> right? we're, we're about to enter the toys and games era. You know, the, tw- <laughs> the 2020s toys and games. Um, the lessons to be learned from Oppenheimer. Are, I mean, you can't really learn much beyond just like, hey, find cool filmmakers and give them money because we've been yeah. making we've been making wildly successful, you know, historical, you know, war films uh, forever. You know, that's true. <laughs> that's always that's always a genre people like. Now, taking a character like that and essentially making a you know a, a courtroom drama and, and shooting it on IMAX and uh, <laughs> that that being functional is uh, is is a mind bending feat I'll never be able to to wrap my head around. Um, but God, that movie is is unreal. Uh, I did just want to circle back to Mission Impossible real quick because you know we're sort of saying oh it's out of the conversation. I think part of why that film is out of the conversation is because it is perceived so broadly as a box office failure by the general public. That's crazy. <laughs> which is which is nuts because it it ignores the fact that for like over six months or something while the film was shut down, they were paying like the full salaries of everyone that was attached mm-hmm. to the film just to keep them all on hold. And then when Mm -hmm. they went back into production, they're like one of the first films to come back into production and they have super strict COVID protocols, which as we know are incredibly expensive Mm -hmm. uh, to to keep a production running. And it's a massive production to begin with. So the budget for that film, whatever it's reported at, you know, quarter billion dollars or something, it's not a real budget. You know, that is is a a, a, a number that like is necessary for a spreadsheet, but it's not reflective of what the film actually cost. And therefore the money it has made in relationship to that budget, you know, the it's it's a it's a bigger win than we are allowing anyone to perceive it as. It also just happened to come out right before those the other two, two biggest gigantic. movies of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think I mean I don't see that ending up affecting Cruz and Macquarie much at all anyway though. They're already set for the sequel. They're already set for the sequel. And given that, you know, Cruise just gave Paramount its like biggest movie ever with Top Gun, like he's got at least a few years of, uh, <laughs> he's probably got enough years of credibility to, uh, to finish out that series, however he chooses to. What I'm concerned about, about the toys and games era, uh, is I'm thinking about our Dungeons and Dragons episode. Right. Which was a lot of fun and is both a toy and a game. <laughs> a toy and a game and a great, uh, you know, another example of sort of like giving interesting filmmakers a big budget to do whatever they want. Yeah. The Barbie effect is going to uh, stretch into, uh, it stretch like it, it's going to affect people for years, I think, you know, affect the, yeah. the uh, corporate 
decision making. Um, Barbie is, for better or for worse, an extremely cynical movie. Like it, it yeah. is very self-referential. It's very self-aware, and it is snarky in a way that um, usually I'm personally like allergic to. It works in Barbie because I think the creative team themselves feel like very sincere somehow through like inside the irony and everything there seems to be a very pure intent i'm not exactly sure how to break that down but it really works in that movie yeah i think it's an incredible sort of example of like having your cake and eating it too where like mattel is able to win us over by sort of saying like look at us we're the butt of the joke come 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 kick me in the balls and like yeah, you're allowed to do that, but you're paying like $24 a seat to do that. And so like Mattel is still making all oh, this yeah. money. It's now, fucking gross. It's, it's, it's wonderful that like, I I've, I think the film is pretty fantastic and like, I love Gerwig and, and her work. And so like, I'm not like mad that Gerwig has become the most successful filmmaker at Warner Brothers <laughs> in Warner Brothers history. That's unreal <laughs> and so fucking cool. Um, yes. But it it does sort of like, it, it is this strange thing where we are sort of saying like, if you're, a, you know, we're basically saying to like giant corporations, like we'll, we'll buy your, your stuff. If you let us, you know, be mean to you a bit while we do it, you know, <laughs> that stuff in the movie is the, is what I'm least interested in. Like yeah. if there was any part of that movie that I was bored of, it was any time. I, I mean, I personally felt any, any time they're like, doing the like the Mattel corporation is you know capitalist pigs it's like oh my god they they were like very eye-rolly moments to me given you know that we paid all that money to see (laughs) Mattel produce film um uh add that to you know the list of wrong lessons to learn Mm -hmm. because uh what really shines in Barbie, I think, is that Gerwig is such an outsider voice yeah. working in this, you know, this very, uh, uh, you know, restrictive populist. One hundred percent. And uh, she makes a, a kind of outsider film that ends up resembling all kinds of like really great and lovely old kinds of movies and musicals and and uh, types of comedy we haven't seen at this you know budget level in a long time. I think yeah. it's it's just a a really colorful and and uh, outsider feeling movie. I mean, the same with Oppenheimer. Yeah. It, it's like a somehow this like gigantic biopic that is full of like action and carnage in a way that you know these stuffy biopics would never have yeah and it it does feel like an echo of the era we've been talking about in that like as as one thing as one sort of cycle of film is coming to an end another one is beginning you know right um it'll be really interesting to see what the successes and failures of the next kind of like 10 to 12 years end up looking like yeah. And so back to Dungeons and Dragons, um, speaking of a, of a success, I mean, maybe well, a, a, a modest it, success. Modest right? only, yeah. Yeah. But uh, successful in the creative sense that like another yeah. movie that is uh, sincere, non-cynical, uh, and uh, feels like classy in an, in an old fashioned way. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure it won't get lumped in with the Barbies and the Oppenheimers and, you know, the, the, big, well, it didn't, uh, it didn't make 900 million plus right. dollars. So there's no way right. that it would. <laughs> but uh, an example of a, of maybe the start of the, the toys and games, uh, 
era that is a positive one of, you know, yeah. them uh, giving filmmakers a chance to do something weird with hopes that it will uh, capture the attention of people who are looking for yeah. a new alternative to what we are, are becoming uh, very bored of, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like 2023 may be the year of, uh, of like, you know, official superhero exhaustion, right? Like <laughs> the death of the superhero thing, even though however many are on the way and a whole new movie universe is about to start. Yeah. But the, the numbers don't lie, right? And Yeah, but, you know, Across the Spider-Verse was also very successful. And I think, and, and Blue Beetle has done fairly well for itself, uh, you know, compared to its budget and, you know, given the other films currently in theaters. It's not over yet, but it's not, yeah. it's not the, uh, you know, the, the world that was has passed. Right. So we are kind of at that inflection point. Uh, I like the idea that toys and games are next. I haven't really thought of it like that, but uh, you're right that given Super Mario Bros. and Barbie, that should be enough to kind of kick off a new era. I mean, Mattel has announced they have, I think, 14 or 15 films <laughs> in development right now, you know? But but that's the thing about Barbie. Like, the Barbie toy has, like, story and atmosphere and, and you know, a rich cultural history. Uh, it it is a thing that like you know yeah. Barbie has a story. Does like a fucking etch a sketch have a well, story? This, this like, is the thing. I mean, there's there's so many of these these films. I don't want to go through all of them, but just like yeah, we did you, it once before, didn't we? <laughs> I think so. But I'll just give you what I think are the two kind of most absurd of them is uh, yeah. Uno and Magic Eight Ball. <laughs> like, how do you make a? <laughs> I mean, Magic Eight Ball is that supposed to be a horror movie? I think Magic Eight Ball. Uh, let's see. It's a yeah, it's a horror comedy. So I mean, which makes sense because you know we had like a couple of Ouija films, and the Mike Flanagan one's very good. Um, yeah. And then you know, Uno is uh, is is apparently going to be a uh, a, a fuck heavy script set in the hip hop scene of Atlanta. What? <laughs> yeah, I mean, who who knows with any of this stuff, man? It's all. Uh, it's Do you think it's kind territory. of it's gotten to a point where people are so exhausted of seeing the same kind of thing over and over that like outsider and outlandish ideas are are like a safe bet for studios? It's entirely possible. I mean, I remember reading one of the summaries of one of these other Mattel films and it was like, the, they were like, yeah, it's kind of like the Pelican brief. I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> this toy movie is going to be like the Pelican? Great. I love the Pelican brief, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, look, it, 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 I think uh, the rules of blockbusters are stricter than they have ever been. Right. But, I do think we are perhaps on the precipice of seeing something like, you know, Legend. I don't know that we're going to get like another Dragon Slayer, but I could see <laughs> us getting another Legend. That reaction that you just said, that like, you know, the, what was it? The Uno movie? Yeah. It's going to be like the Pelican Brief. The what? <laughs> yeah. Do, do you think that specific reaction is like the, uh, it's, it's, it's putting the money signs in the investors' eyes right now. Yeah, it could be. It could be this is sort of the like, well, if we build this press narrative of like, you won't, won't believe this shit, then like, right. you know, people will people will turn out because they need to see if they do in fact believe it. It's like a uh, 
it's like a culture of like like outrageous uh outrageous ideas um yeah as like a as a response to the way that uh for so many years now the ideas in these movies have been very uh rageous <laughs> very not i mean that that was sort of the mission statement of kevin feige right like you know these movies can be exciting and and go uh to places you don't you don't expect but on the whole the revolutionary idea i'm bringing into this is that they are all like predictable that they exist yeah. in this predictable world for better or for worse you know you can have that comfort of showing up to one and being like oh i remember that guy yeah <laughs> yeah uh i mean i think i think we could be in for anything and i do think the you know announcing that you're going to make a you know dark and gritty barney adaptation uh <laughs> definitely piques my interest I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, that very specific thing of like, whereas maybe 20 years ago, it was, we're making a Barney movie and it's being made at this level for this audience. That's the selling point. Right. Now it's, we're making a Barney movie and it's made by this outsider voice with this very right. outrageous Right, it's produced taste. by Daniel Kaluuya and it's about millennial angst and ennui. right. About about growing up in the world Barney promised you and finding out it doesn't exist. <laughs> Turns out, folks, I don't love you and you don't love me. <laughs> it's funny that uh, the Muppets have sort of been just completely, uh, like, uh, com completely free of that. Like they don't, they don't do that shit. Like they don't do well, like, this is the serious Muppets movie about. Well, yeah, they don't do that, but they, they are at the point now where there is the sort of like recursive feedback loop where the Muppets. But that's been around for, I mean, that's, that's the Muppet. I mean, right, it's the, always been The there, Muppets right? have they always been self-referential yeah. and, you know, fourth wall breaky in a really great way. But like the, uh, you know the the Muppets Mayhem show currently airing on on Disney. I think yeah. it's wrapped up now, but that that the aired recently on Disney Plus. One of the main characters is a super fan of the Electric Mayhem, and like his whole thing uh, is that okay. like I've been following the Electric Mayhem my entire life. You know, <laughs> so there it, it has that sort of like you know everything with you know legacy intellectual property has to have a fanboy character. You know, Oh, the Muppets very important to the to the period. Yeah, those Muppets. Yes. I feel like we were we were hanging out with Muppets almost every other week. Pretty much, yeah. Almost every other <laughs> week sounds about right. And it's quite sad that this is probably the only series short of us doing a Muppet series that that will ever be the case. <laughs> Why would we ever just like be casually hanging out with the Muppets in some movies? <laughs> it's true. It's true. This is this is really it. Um this is the the era of the Henson workshop. <laughs> Wow, how sad. I mean, is there any, I guess if we were doing like uh, maybe space operas or or just, uh, no, I mean, this is the only genre where some movies just happen to have Muppets in them. <laughs> right? I love phrasing it that way. What else, what else is there? Are there horror movies with Muppets in them? Not really, right? No. I mean, no. Like, uh, um, you know, effects-heavy movies sometimes have puppets. Oh, sure. But, yeah, of course. Uh, I don't think that they appear... Could be wrong. But 
it could, it could until, be that I haven't had enough coffee this morning, but uh, I can't. <laughs> I can't think of. I can't think of another time or place other than this one where, you know, week to week, you may see a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> until our Henson series, we'll have to say goodbye to the Muppets for now. Yeah, I cannot wait to to one day to one day do that. It'll be a, a joyous experience. Truly. All right. Why don't we go down the movies that we uh, that we spoke about in this series, and then we'll announce. What's coming next? next? You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So we began in the year 1980 with Mike Hodges' Flash Gordon, which introduced to us the world of reactionary Star Wars films uh, and Dino De Laurentiis, uh, uh, an ever-present character uh, who lives on in my mind always. Uh, (laughs) Ever since realizing that Angelo Badalamenti is playing Dino De Laurentiis in Mulholland Drive. <laughs> I just like, I think of this is the girl all the time. Like it's just always kind of in my head now. Now, remind me in Flash Gordon, they're in a world called Mungo. Planet, Planet, Planet named... Mongo and it is Mongo. Pla- Planet Mongo and, uh, is ruled by Emperor by Ming. Emperor Ming. Love yeah. That. So timeless. <laughs> Just the, the light racism in there is just light, yeah. Uh, extremely, uh, extremely weird, uh, you know, problematic film. Uh, yes, that also contains some, you know, really fun and great filmmaking. Some very stylish uh, world building and and kind of delightful performances. Uh, yeah, it features our first death ray. Very good death ray. Um, it is still, I feel like kind of Star Wars, like hangover, like it's still coming down from a Star Wars high still. I feel like, uh, you know, coming down from a 1970s high, uh, I don't feel like we've truly entered the period until, uh, I don't know, maybe Dragon Slayer. Yeah. And I mean, Flash Gordon, again, like the, the, the most important thing to know about Flash Gordon is that Lucas wants to do Flash Gordon. De Laurentiis <laughs> owns the rights, will not let him do it. Lucas invents Star Wars and De Laurentiis is like, oh, fuck me, I got to do a Flash Gordon right now. <laughs> and what's so... Uh, <laughs> it's like this strange, like, 70s, like, hippie reaction to Star Wars, which yeah, itself extremely is psychedelic. A 70s- yeah, like, but Star Wars itself is like selling the hippie thing very strong. Flash Gordon just kind of takes it one step further. There's a lot of adult stuff in there. There's a Queen uh, soundtrack. The Queen soundtrack. Uh, it's also like weirdly, I mean, 
I don't think the budget is... The budget may be higher than Star Wars. I right? believe the budget was higher than Star Wars. Yeah, let me... <laughs> but it looks like it was made for like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars less, if not more. Uh, it's it, it it's a very unique and singular movie. It's a perfect way to start this, this series because um, in addition to being inspired by something from very long ago, these like 1920s serials or whatever... Uh, it is also just a very distinct attempt at creating something new and and yeah. trying to capture the uh, the the capture the imagination of you know millions, which I think it it eventually succeeds in. It does eventually years. succeed in, you know, <laughs> but becomes, not in the way that they wanted. I think, yeah, becomes a mega cult hit, you know, after the fact. But at the time, is definitely a is definitely a disappointment. And and to confirm, its budget is around thirty five million dollars, and the and the estimated budget for Star Wars is around eleven. So it is more than three <laughs> times the budget of Star Wars. <laughs> wow, and yeah, I mean, and it, at some points, looks like a. Like a true B movie, yes, uh, <laughs> in like the best way possible. Though, oh, like yeah. I love the the miniatures and the effects in that film. <laughs> and we would not have our uh, beloved uh, MCU without it. It's true. I think uh, th- this this one, you know, kind of uh, it paves the way for all the action comedies that follow. And it directly inspires people like James Gunn. Who, James Gunn, Taika Waititi, and, Edgar yeah. Wright, Seth MacFarlane. I don't know if you get the success of this Marvel thing without James Gunn, because without that that piece of the puzzle, the of cosmic Guardians zone, of the ga- galaxy. Yeah, I mean, if if that hadn't been as successful, I don't know if you arrive at at Infinity War in the way that we did. And I don't think you get Thor Ragnarok either. And Thor Ragnarok is like very much just what if we did Flash Gordon again? Yeah. I mean, we were talking off mic earlier about like how exciting it was, you know, for better or for worse, how exciting it was to live through all of that. And yeah, just the, 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 the luck that, you know, these filmmakers had that, you know, if some of those movies hadn't hit in the very specific way that they had, I don't know that we would have gotten those gigantic, uh, you know, unprecedented movies. Um, yeah. But then if we hadn't gotten them, maybe we wouldn't be trapped inside this one sort of movie <laughs> for the rest of our lives. If it hadn't been that, it would have been something else, you know? Right. Because if, if you think about what was coming sort of like right before that and what like ended while the superhero thing was, you know, kicking off, it was all, you know, the the adaptations of the, the young adult, you know, novels, you know? It's That's like we true. had a... Uh, Potter, Twilight, and Hunger Games kind of all at the that's same true, time. That's and like true. there are lesser ones that we that don't get spoken about very often, but a part of that is your yeah. your your Percy Jackson's, your mm-hmm. uh your divergence, uh right. you know, there's there's all the you know, maze, maze runner. runner. Don't, yeah. Don't forget the maze runner. Exactly. There's there's <laughs> all of those things. Like that was its own thing. But I feel like that era, because like Potter is so like outsized uh, in its success comparatively, they all kind of get subsumed into that, you know? That's but true. it's like, you forget that like, by the time the final Hunger Games movie came out, it had like five Academy Award winners in the main cast, you know? Like, <laughs> like those were important films for a hot second. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Wow. That, that whole moment just came and went. Yeah. Uh, I totally missed it. <laughs> I didn't see any of them. <laughs> 
Forget it, Ming. Dale's with me. Flash! Stay back! And then we skipped ahead to the year 1981, and we hit John Borman's Excalibur. We sure a did. Movie that uh, to me seemed uh, on first watch like incomprehensible, and then throughout this series, <laughs> just became more and more uh, like coherent, and uh, like I, I felt as though I understood the meaning. Uh, it becomes of more of a Rosetta Stone. The uh, it does. The, it does. Yeah, the longer really you, does. the longer you go on, um, you see so many films that come from from the DNA of that movie. I remember talking about it when we were planning out the series, and you being like, "Well, yeah, we got to do Excalibur. It's fucking crazy." <laughs> <laughs> it is. And I think I had said to you that like half the film is this like lavish like gorgeous you know kind of you know star wars riff and the other half of the movie is men cosplaying in the woods yeah i i couldn't understand the exact sort of crazy that you were like implying when you said that like i just could not i I had no sense of like what that would look like or what that would be and i don't think anyone can until they really like look at this period and yeah like if you just watch Excalibur and you don't watch any of these other movies, you I feel like you walk out like very confused and <laughs> but then if you see all of these other ones it just becomes this this other thing. It's, yeah. It's, it's such a, a a weird unique moment. I mean, if you just think about three distinct moments from that film, it seems like three different movies. You know, it's like, yeah, it and does. like my, I would say like the three moments that that's are the strongest in my mind are like, you know, Arthur riding through the rose petals with the, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> like you've got yeah. that unbelievable sequence. You know, so feels good. so iconic in in just what it's yeah. doing. And then you have things like guys falling all over each other while rolling down a hill in suits of armor, which like on the one hand, you know, you're like, and they're actually getting hurt and they're actually all getting like really, really hurt. And it becomes this thing where you're like, Oh, see, this is what like the warfare actually looked like, despite the fact that they're all wearing like gleaming chrome suits of armor, you know, like, right. There's, you know, and, and that is so, uh, interesting to behold. And then you've got things like Merlin in his like fortress of solitude where he's like, Ah, uh, yes, the charm of making, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> and all of this talk of a dragon. Yeah. But we, we never get to see one, which is just amazing to me. It's great. Yeah. It's so cool. The dragon as the force is one of the most, like, yeah. one of the boldest sort of Star Wars responses we, we get. Look, we could have ended this series with the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings. Well, I, I wanna I wanna talk about that, but I don't think you can end the series with it. I I just think that like we could have used what we learned from this series to talk about those films in this context. Um, we could have, and you know, we're I saving just, that. I just for think a, that that like that becomes its own era. Is the thing right? I think that kind of limits the readings of the movies to this very specific thing. But, you know, there's no denying that those films do not exist in the form that they come in without, you know, a, a, you know, probably every one of these movies. Well, well, hang on, hang on. Let me, 
give you a quote here. I think this is okay. going to be helpful for, for what you were saying. The book that we've referred back to a number of times, Encountering the Impossible, a very uh, useful text in sort of looking at all of these films. In the conclusion chapter that, uh, about this era of filmmaking, it says... The uh, the period of the high fantasy blockbuster ultimately proved to be short-lived given the relative commercial failure of many of its productions. Yet its legacy would continue, its filmmaking patterns finding echoes in future <laughs> attempts to bring high fantasy back to the screen after its imposed hiatus at the end of the decade. Films like Wizards of the Demon Sword from 92, Cull the Conqueror in 97 saw smaller production companies attempting to revive some of the success of previous decade, while other productions like The Last Action Hero 1993 or The Page Master 1994 saw studios attempt to reinvent the high fantasy formula by integrating elements of the action film or by experimenting with the use of cell animation. But... It was not until the early 2000s that high fantasy filmmaking would stage a real resurgence among Hollywood studio productions, thanks to the astonishing commercial and critical success of New Line's Lord of the Rings. A wave of high fantasy franchises followed that seemed to offer up a new kind of fantasy adventure and spectacle to the audience. The techniques perfected during this era and the new kinds of experiences they offer will be the subject of the final chapter that is yet to come. Right now, it is important to emphasize that as much as contemporary fantasy filmmaking differentiates itself from the high fantasy era of the 1980s, it is also indebted to it. Hollywood's first wave of high fantasy blockbusters taught studios what not to do certainly, but it also taught them what to do, meaning that their legacy is not entirely absent from some of the fantasy genre's more recent success stories. <laughs> and then it goes on to point to things like Potter and Narnia as, as being influenced by this as well. We can kind of just end the episode there. Pretty much says everything we're going to say in this in this episode. <laughs> I think a lot about Excalibur now when I, you know, watch Lord of the Rings or see clips of it and yeah. the kind of like righteous like holiness to the fantasy in Excalibur, I feel like is something Jackson is very inspired by and chasing after. Uh it's but but then again, it's a kind of cleaning up of of borman's vision in excalibur where yeah the, the jackson lord of the rings are very unified in their vision whereas excalibur is like is is all over the place excalibur <laughs> has a chaos to it because i yeah. think i think in part because excalibur is trying to wrangle all of arthurian legend into like one story <laughs> like that's definitely yeah. you know like the grail quest represents like 15 minutes of the film you know, like, you know, so that's just one example of the many yeah. things it tries to condense into this one sort of two and a bit hour long epic. But so, so it has that level of chaos. It also has the chaos of being, you know, post 70s, pre 80s, you know, like it that's hasn't, true. it hasn't, the, the, the genre hasn't quite uh, formed yet and the decade hasn't quite formed yet. So it's using, it's using older kind of aesthetics and techniques while also developing new ones and, it just, it exists at this like perfect little, you know, uh, th this point where like it's neither one thing nor the other, which is why it feels so chaotic. You look at those Jackson films and, and as you say, it's all unified. It's all one thing. Yeah. Even in terms of like, hey, look at how brutal the, the violence of war can be. It feels so much more intentional than the just pure chaos of the battlefields in this film. That's true. But then later that year, we get the movie that I think really cements the genre dragon slayer my god yes. uh matthew robbins dragon slayer from 1981 i don't know about you dom but like this for me was the one 
Like I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I've, nev- I've never, I have not gotten over <laughs> the experience of like discovering and watching this film. Is this a favorite of yours now? I mean, look, the, it, it's it's hard to say given that this series has two Jim Henson films in it, but uh, <laughs> I mean, this one, man, it really like yeah. I cannot express to the listeners how much I just was taken in by this movie and how much I loved the experience of it truly felt like like watching a, you know it sounds silly because so many of these were first watches but this was really like the first watch where I was like I feel like I'm seeing something I've never seen before even though it has yeah. so many elements of all these things that we you know we've seen a million times oh over. yeah yeah I think what's so special about it is that it is so little known it's so uh mm-hmm. There's a there's a like a feeling of like you're seeing something that's been a a closely guarded secret for yeah. decades. You know, <laughs> it has that. I think we said on the episode, it's like you mean to tell me that this thing has just always been here, and I could have yeah. watched it any time. Like I, it, it's fucking nuts, and it's very much enhanced by the sensational uh, 4K. Uh, transfer just and that, that whole package unreal. is just so good yeah i mean one, <laughs> one of, of the, my favorite things i have in my apartment now <laughs> truly it's one of the best home yeah. video releases perhaps of all time um it really is yeah yeah it's 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 so good uh and a thing we also said during that episode it sort of shows you like you know this is the other star wars it's made by basically like the entire star wars team right and it's just crazy to think that like there's a world where if this took off instead of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the world we live in today would be wildly different. And there was, you know, a chance of that happening, right? I think yeah. if Raiders had not kind of engulfed this movie. Just ate this film's lunch. Yeah. Or maybe not. I mean, maybe this is just for a very specific audience of people who appreciate this sort of thing. And it it doesn't feel like a very, like, American kind of... uh thing it feels kind of foreign to the to the sort of excitement that people have in movies here i think i mean there's well, also a it, lot of because like, it's not a um it's not a film that like revels in what it's doing like it doesn't really seek to have yeah. fun like you can have fun while watching it but ultimately it's a film about how like the vietnam draft was you know <laughs> a grotesque you know uh, yeah, that's in there. Was it was a bargain with a monster, and you know we never should have uh, we never right. should have treated the people like this. And I love the sense in that movie that is kind of hovering over all of these films that like the old gods are still like very much like you know in their lairs, and if you disturb them, they will uh, eat Christianity for lunch. Yeah, <laughs> I just love that. Yeah, that's, they're that's still not here and thing. they're fucking pissed. <laughs> Yeah, that's not a thing I think that appeals to the broader like populist American sense of a blockbuster. And it's a thing that a movie like Star Wars is so much better at kind of, you know, serving in a in a delicious little silver platter that a, a lot of people I think don't notice that it it's in there. Yeah. Well, it's because I think pointedly because the force is what the good guys have access to you know it's like it's like it's like you too can learn to control this magic that's always been there whereas in dragon slayer it's like the magic is mostly this one talisman that like our hero doesn't quite understand and 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 as a result the dragon is the magic of the film and that shit is angry and pissed and wants to eat you (laughs) 
And if I was going to like program a uh, a theater series on this, I I think I would. I mean, the back to back of Dragon Slayer to Conan. So Conan the Barbarian is 1982, yes, and that's John Milius, of course, the Madman himself, <laughs> the writer of Apocalypse Now. Uh, the back to back of Dragon Slayer to Conan, which there are several movies in between that we you know skip you know, for, cause we can't do all of them, but that is such an impactful like conversation. I think that, that the, the reaction or the, whatever is happening between Robbins and Milius between these two movies, I think pretty much contains everything that you need to know about the genre and yeah. the period. I mean, except for, and you know, dark crystal is next. So maybe we just include that in this, that, the dark, the dark crystal, it, you know, it has the the Henson stuff. It has the Muppet element, so, yeah, right. So that's the one thing the missing Muppet from, factor, from, right, from Dragon Slayer and Conan. But I think the '80s are full of like, you know, you you could say like bold and brawn, like you mm. know, the 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 broader conversation happening in America with the the Reagan of it, and you know, the return to hardcore masculine American values following what happens in the seventies. That's yeah. that's Conan to me. But then yeah. the boldness and the outrageousness of you know you know the the recovering hippies and you know the the kind of zaniness that we start to get in the eighties and the later films like uh you know like highlander or or labyrinth just like the the unhinged like deranged zaniness that you would never expect to be in a movie of this scale i think that's all in dragon slayer so these two movies are are so uh representative of of everything that happens here yes and the the heroes of them too are perfect like they're perfect foils for each other. <laughs> like the the beefy, you know, Schmei, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger could not be, like, he could. He could not be further from, from Galen. Yeah. Yeah. No, you you you're right. break him like a twig. <laughs> and, and what ends up happening is the, the Galens of, of the genre shrink down smaller and become actual little boys. And or the, puppets, <laughs> or, pu- or puppets, as we see in Dark Crystal, <laughs> and the uh, and the Conans become like kind of the villains, like they become yeah, they become yeah. the uh, the the bad guys of these stories, or they become like the friendly giants, right? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and then I feel like uh, you know skipping ahead, but just like yeah the uh christopher lambert the high the highlander he's he's weirdly like he's both of them all of them yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so yeah i mean and and conan you know just this incredible fierce furious very modern feeling you know uh movie you know it, it you know dragon slayer still i think has uh has much of that 70s energy, you know, in yes. it as well. But but Conan being this sort of, you know, as you have said already, big, big, beefy, brawny guy, the the filmmaking reflects that. You know, the the editing of the <laughs> film is is different and new. The uh the the shot composition, uh, you know, highlighting things for maximum awesomeness using slow motion. It it it's a, you know, it's a new way of doing things that becomes a very important to to films that that come after it. I mean, it fucking rocks. And there's the sense that all the creative decisions were made 
at the other end of like a of a handgun. Yeah. <laughs> that, that Milius is arriving at like, producer. He's going to meet the, Dino De Laurentiis with a loaded yeah. weapon. Uh, and Pointed tell, at, at him. Yeah. <laughs> right. And telling him, this is the movie I am making. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, there is also this weird spirituality to it. This weird, almost like sensitiveness to Conan. Yeah. This, this the brooding sort of, thing. Because it's got the, the Nietzsche thing of, you know, you know, uh, yeah. succeeding through, through great suffering and, and self-actualizing through pain. And so, yeah, you see the self-actualization, <laughs> you, you see the, uh, you the know, wheel the, of the, pain. you see all that, but you see the pain, you see the suffering and you see the, uh, the the toll it takes on uh, on young Arnold as he as he is birthed into movie stardom. I firmly believe that if Schwarzenegger came back and they made a Conan in this actual fashion, they committed themselves to like the spirituality and the you know unhinged uh, biceps of it. And <laughs> we're not like cynical of like, isn't it funny that you know that. It, uh, things are like this. Isn't it funny that I look like this? Isn't it funny that movies used to be like this? Like, if they just committed and made one just like this, I think it would be like a cultural phenomenon. It would be well, like, I dude, think it you would have to see kind of be Northman. Yeah, but I guess no, I guess Northman, Northman, like not to skip ahead, but like Northman, Northman, uh, it does, uh, it does sort of like interrogate Conan. You know, it does like yeah. it doesn't do the winking and nodding that like you've just been referencing, but it does interrogate the idea of sort of like, hey, like if we're like a self-actualizing through great suffering and pain, like the repetition of that narrative, like, you know, it is mostly just suffering and pain, you know, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, I guess movies like Northman or Mandy are are both kind of doing uh mandy i think is more mandy revels in rage and revenge it's a little different (laughs) um northman is sort of like you know revenge will hurt is a poison it will kill you it'll destroy you you know well if if they do it if they do another conan i feel like that is one we are contractually obliged to include in this series yeah, although I do not want to obligate us to watch either Conan the Destroyer or Conan no. 2011. Crom, I've never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you will remember if we were good men or bad, why we fought or why we died. No, all that matters is that two stood against many. That's what's important. Barbara pleases you, Kram. So grant me one request. Grant me revenge. I wonder if we will return to this miniseries at all in the next years. I think it's possible. I think it depends on where the film industry goes. You know? If they make like a dark fantasy Muppets thing like there's no way we won't (laughs) sure i mean that brings us to dark crystal and that brings us to dark crystal jim henson and frank oz's 1982 uh masterpiece dark crystal one of the coolest films to have ever existed uh a, a film that begs the question what if we made a film with no human characters and the entire movie was puppeteered uh un fucking believable they invented 
an entire world, an entire universe uh, to, to tell this one story. And that was that. <laughs> uh, movies like this have occurred since then, but not at this level and yeah. never will again at no. this level. I don't, I mean, unless something truly unprecedented and insane happens, like no. a Mad Max Fury Road sort of moment of some director just getting away with it. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is a confluence of, you know, one of the most important and recognized children's entertainers in the history of entertainment seeing a series of images by a like weirdo psychedelic painter and deciding <laughs> that like he needs to he needs to create invent and and explain the story behind these images you know like what a what a wild origin point for all of that and then because <laughs> henson and and his team had been working with you know, Lucas on on Star Wars in 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 some capacity. There is this sense, I think, that like, hey, we can do we can do our version of that. You know, we can we can dive into our own space. We can we can hire a collective of mimes and clowns, watch them <laughs> watch them move through a space and design like some beasties around uh, around just how those people move through a room, and uh, and we'll weave a whole tale around them. Yeah, it's one in a million. One of the few on this show that is like uh, just a truly unique movie. A truly sacred text. I still yeah. can't get over the fact that they initially planned to have no English dialogue in the film. Ah, uh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. That's so fucking crazy. It's amazing. What a picture. Um, I can't believe it. Uh, Although like, I mean, another unique and ins insane movie that, I mean... I guess more movies like this have happened than movies like Dark Crystal, but uh, 1984, Company of Wolves. Yes, Neil by, Jordan's by, by psychosexual Jordan. werewolf art yeah. film. You know, in a way, Company of Wolves very much resembles like a lot of the the so-called you know prestige auteur horror that that oh yeah you know, of today. I don't know that people recognize the influence of that movie i'm sure the directors making these these you know what, what people call auteur horror movies today i'm sure they know about this movie but you know everybody who worships like a24 and the witch they just go watch company of wolves like, right people have been making that kind of movie for decades now yeah absolutely this strange you know freudian disturbing you know horny werewolf film uh, <laughs> i think what's so lovely about this movie is that it's not really sure that it's a horror movie it's not really decided on that i think right the uh because the the horrors are often just pain or, <laughs> or pleasure you know pain and pleasure yeah. in equal measure <laughs> and it's like a it's a fairy tale with also like yeah nice parts and like surreal parts uh and just kind of randomly truly horrific parts not randomly but but unex yeah. often unexpectedly right but if company of wolves comes out today it's 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 marketed in a very specific way I yeah mean, we talked it, about it that premieres at fantastic fest and you know right. is released by a24 and right one yeah. of those absolutely <laughs> 
And then we turn a corner. We hit uh, 1984's uh, Never Ending Story from Wolfgang Peterson, the most expensive German production at the time that it is made. <laughs> uh Absolutely, their intention is to do a Star Wars, to do a Disney film, to make a big budget film for children designed to be a mega hit. And boy, is it. Yeah, it's a good halfway point for the series. Yeah, it's a turning point for sure. Definitely. Uh, But nonetheless, still contains things that you would not see in a movie from today. Yeah. Uh, today's fantasy movies look like Super Mario Bros. Uh, and... And this has the swamp of sadness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which, like, in a world where, like, many young people are now sort of, like, recognizing the importance of taking care of their mental health uh, earlier, I'm so curious, sort of, like, watching that now as, like, a kid and you're just like, but I'm depressed. Like, <laughs> does that mean <laughs> I just die in this world? <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, let's let's play that out. So if a kid is depressed, according to this film, so long as you read a book and put yourself in the shoes of the main character and what is it name the world after no you must your mom? Uh, you must call you must call <laughs> out the uh the princess's name the princess moonchild right? moonchild then all of your problems will be uh swept away by a flying dog well he throws your bullies into a dumpster it's not just about naming this this hay. this girl it's about reckoning with his grief <laughs> right 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 yes no but, but it's a, it's about yeah. the self-reflexive power of of engaging with 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 fantasy as company of wolves also was you know um the power of it's the power of, those... of our subconscious but it's a movie that feels to me that has a similar like bizarre message i think to kids as as a movie like uh end game where it's like if you want your problem solved just go back in time and solve them and this one you know if you want your problem solved and your bullies uh vanquished just get a big flying dog who will which is not the way the book ends right <laughs> no the book doesn't end with the sort of rule breaking of falcor flying into the real world <laughs> with with bastion on his shoulders um but the, I mean, I so admire that during the, you know, this Reagan era, this period of deregulation, this period of, you know, you know, uh, hastening of environmental collapse and destruction, this culture war between, this new culture war that he has stirred between the, you know, the the Christian right and the and the new left. I love this idea that the film just has a has has the bad guy look into camera and sort of say like. My whole deal is that I am working at the behest of those people to make life worse. And unless you use your imagination, you're completely fucked. You know, <laughs> I just think that's a great fucking thing to put in a movie. Yeah, there is a lot to love and a lot to uh, be uh, terrified of in never ending story. I mean, just imagine making a kid's a film now where, where the villain is like a horrible, grotesque, like wolf who looks into camera and is like, I am a servant of the Republican Party. <laughs> like, that's incredible. <laughs> I work for the fascists that want to take away your rights. You should probably try and kill me. Oh, 
And then, of course, the most terrifying of all. <laughs> yes. Walter Murch's Return to Oz. Part sequel, part adaptation, 100% hellscape. Another horror movie that doesn't know it's a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not a horror movie at all. No. It's just horrifying to behold. It's, it's scary. Yeah. It is scary. It's one of those those rare movies that is like very, very frightening, but I don't think wants to be a horror movie at, at, at all. No. No, but, you know, the the quote that, you know, Henson... The, the quote we have from Frank Oz about Jim Henson making the Dark Crystal, this idea that, like, it is okay to scare children. It is inappropriate to make them feel safe 100% of the time because then they will be inadequately prepared for what it is to be a, a real person. Uh, you know, Walter Murch is very much keyed into that kind of idea, as Wolfgang Peterson was in the, you know, in, in, in Never Ending Story and Neil Jordan is in Company of Wolves. But I feel like Walter Murch is very much in that same space of wanting people to be able to tap into the primal fear that we carry with us at all ages and and make it flesh, you know, uh, and bring those things to life in a way that is safe to engage with. Because that's the whole thing with fantasy is that it's not real. It's safe to engage with with the scary and the horrible uh, in these spaces. Do you think we'll ever get a Wizard of Oz direct sequel? That I mean, we had that like- we had that prequel, you know, Oz the Great and Powerful right. from from Sam Raimi, but. A direct sequel to the MGM film? Yeah. I mean, beyond I mean, that's what, what this, this is. That's what like, this is, yeah. But it's a it's a it's a sequel and a kind of like course correction re, yeah, back like towards the original material. Yeah. Like I, I I'm kind of surprised there isn't more of an effort to make Oz like a a uh a giant movie franchise. But Wicked, Wicked is coming out. And it's Wicked be is a, coming out. Yeah. A two-part, like, gigantic thing, I think. That's I mean, also Ariana a prequel, Grande's though. in it. Yeah, that's true. Although it has... Or is half of it a sequel? I can't remember. It's sort of the Fire Walk With Me thing, where it's like right. mostly a prequel, but then you get the sequel at the end. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, yeah, I'm sure that will change. That that could bring in a new wave of fascination with Oz and and prompt yeah. uh, and prompt people to to make more of those films. It is public domain stuff, so I mean, anyone can do an Oz, That's which true. is why there are there are, there are plenty of Oz adaptations. You know, there's right. there's, yeah. there's lots of them. But I would imagine that if Wicked is a success, Disney will announce a new Oz film very quickly. And people tend not to want to compete with Disney, uh, which you can That's see true. with Warner Brothers dumping Mowgli to, you know, day oh, and wow, day. I and, about that. Right, you know, Warner Brothers gave Andy Serkis money to make his own Jungle Book, and then you know Disney did theirs, and they were like, oh, I don't know about this one. <laughs> wow, did you did you watch Mowgli? I no, I, sh- I I haven't seen the Favreau Jungle Book, and I haven't seen yeah, neither. Have I. I haven't seen the Circus Mowgli, but uh, I'm definitely uh, interested in in what he did there because I find Circus to be a fascinating yeah, me too know, person. Uh, and then 1985, yes. the reason for the season, Ridley Scott's <laughs> Legend, a film uh, so uh, powerful uh, that you you tricked me into doing this entire series. <laughs> Yeah, how are you going to get your revenge on me? I mean, it 
we have so many shared interests that uh the thing we're doing directly after this like in in some ways is my revenge but at the same time it's very much like you're just also fully on board with it so not that (laughs) i wasn't fully on board with this but no i won and you must take your revenge i will no no other way to spin this adam i got three three or four movies that i i i just claim that we we shall and we must do and somehow i bent your will to mine i mean then again though dom like i got in this series i got you know i got you to talk about flash gordon dark crystal you know uh labyrinth you know mm-hmm. i got a i got a lot of dungeons and dragons, uh, dungeons and dragons. i got a lot of i got a lot of traction That's on true. this one too this, you know, okay. as okay. as as Hollywood tried to figure out how to respond to uh, to Star Wars, you and I figured out how to respond to each other. Ah, that's wonderful. <laughs> Legend will be a; uh, it will exist in my my mind's eye for years to come. I feel I like it changed your life. <laughs> well, I am like a sword guy now. Yeah, I don't want to leave the forest. I don't like. I want to live in the legend woods. I don't want to leave. Like I've been, uh, I've been trying to get into this Starfield game that everyone is uh, raving about. And you've got to, just... you've got to get into Baldur's Gate three. That's what I'm doing. But then in that, I got to like roll dice and stuff. Yeah, but you click a button to roll the dice. <laughs> and I'm, I'm one of the one it. of the most amazing things about Dungeons and Dragons. I should save this for the you know later in the episode is there is a thrill to watching that dice roll you know like ah. you are you are in suspense waiting to see if you have succeeded or failed and it's like it's basically like god is looking you in the face and giving you either a thumbs up or a thumbs down and like you are powerless uh uh to to refute that thumb ah fascinating watch it, watching the hand quiver before the thumb reveals itself there's power to that <laughs> I think part of what I love about legend and what I've decided is like my, my personal sense of fantasy and what I'm looking for out of fantasy is just how nice and simple it is. Mm -hmm. It's just good and evil, black and white guy with a sword in the woods. There's not like, you know, tons of different worlds to contend with and all these different factions and rules. It's just, it could not be more simple. The bad guy is literally named darkness. <laughs> I mean, I feel like what you're talking about is the star Wars of it all. You want evil and you want good and evil to be uh, a necessary partnership and reflection of one another, but you're not super interested in the gray area in between. Yeah, I guess so. In my taste and fantasy, I, I think there is just something so pure and fun to just a dude with a sword. Yeah. Meanwhile, for me, it's all about Dragon Slayer, where I'm like, the institution is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, the system yeah. we live in is what's broken. <laughs> Why would we hold this up? I see what you're saying, but also I think Dragon Slayer has that beautiful purity too of just like this guy's gotta slay that dragon right right in the title yeah (laughs) if we don't it's gonna eat us all yes i love that (laughs) yeah but i do think i'm a dragon slayer guy you're a legend guy i do think that's That's kind of that's 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 where the demarcation line line is it's two two sides of a very sort of you know a very it's Mm kind of like heads on one side and heads on the other side but um (laughs) you know uh darkness on one side dragon on the other side 
Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and we, uh, we uh, Vermith, Vermithrax, pejorative, Vermithrax pejorative, the most, the most yeah. impressive on-screen dragon in the history of cinema. Um, <laughs> we cannot, though, we cannot just breeze past Darkness himself. Uh, Tim Curry, yes, Tim cast, cast for the quote, uh, you know, be, being, you know, the, the bravest actor of all right. time by, <laughs> by delivering the performance he does in Rocky Horror Picture Show, comes in with one simple request. You can slather me up in as much prosthetics as you like as long as you leave me my eyes. And they barely did that that uh you know the dude has uh has ping pong balls taped over his his uh his eyeballs uh just an unbelievably committed performance a 13 foot tall man uh with 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 hoofs and and horns you gotta love it and he's horny and in the same way that Vermithrax pejorative is the uh you know all dragons are derivative of Vermithrax pejorative all devils are derivative of darkness. I was going to say that. Yeah, that you got you have the definitive movie Satan perhaps. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it is. Oh, yeah, and 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 you have the two sort of like definitive guys making these characters, Phil Tippett doing Vermidrax pejorative and uh, you know, Rob Bottin doing darkness. That's true, that's true. And they both converge in RoboCop. <laughs> you disgust me. You're nothing but an animal. <laughs> we are all animals, my lady. Most are too afraid to see it. Speaking of movies that are pure versus movies that are so confusing and complex, when we get to Highlander in 86... What, you don't like having a, you don't like an everything bagel, Dom? You don't like all the flavors <laughs> all at once? Russell Mulcahy's Highlander is such a confusing movie to me. I mean, not just, uh, I I can pretty much understand story-wise what's going on, but just the thing itself is such just a disturbing and strange thing that exists. It is, uh, you know, it's the perfect Venn diagram of dark fantasy and MTV. Yeah, that's probably, yeah. I mean, like... Getting to 86 and seeing that, okay, this is what movies look like now. Yeah. You can, you have this sense that like, they will never go back to Dragon Slayer. Like now that we've hit this moment, they'll never go back. Well, because also if you look at, you know, all the films preceding this, they are either films that, you know, take place in a fantasy world, a fantasy landscape, or they are portal fantasies where someone from our world enters a fantasy landscape highlander is our first urban fantasy a film set in a contemporary you know time period to the production of the film in which the fantasy is in that real world it has seeped into reality and uh much of the film is about sort of trying to conceal that trying to conceal that the fantasy exists on the edges of society that men are just walking around with swords beheading each other casually for the prize (laughs) like they couldn't have guns right you have to you have to decapitate your foe yeah because that's the only way to kill an immortal being is to is to uh, is to destroy the head or sever the brain what is it is that's from from Shaun of the yeah. dead sever the head and destroy <laughs> the brain yeah something like that yeah wow that's the only way yeah highlander absolutely bonkers what a delight um a film I saw in my youth uh, with that my my it's one of my mum's favorite films. She showed it to me, and uh, just what a picture! One that will uh, the energy to it, the vitality. Yes, 
It is an erect film from start to finish. (laughs) (laughs) It sure is. It sure is. And then we followed that up with Jim Henson's Labyrinth. Similarly, uh, you know, dark (laughs) and horny. (laughs) Yes, Yes, we've got got David Bowie. So we went from having a a, a guy wielding a sword while uh, lamenting his endless life uh, to, uh, you know... Uh, you know, queen-powered action ballads uh, to just yeah. Bowie looking into the camera and singing us to sleep. You remind me of the babe. You remind me of the babe. What a what a what a wonderfully special and unique film. That's been my new soundtrack. That song, the Magic really? Dance, because you know I have been uh, wanting to get into Bowie and explore Bowie finally, but. I, I listen to music mainly in the car these days because I've been driving a lot more. Mm-hmm. And like when I pull up my uh, <laughs> my Spotify on the on my car's screen, I'm driving and I don't want to like go through like all Bowie's like discography and figure it so out. So you see Labyrinth so like, and you're just like, well, I know that one. Well, that just comes up first on my Spotify because when I was researching soundtrack to use for our opening theme, ah. I was listening to some Labyrinth stuff. So it's just right there. So more often than not, when I get in my car, I I click <laughs> Spotify and then I click Magic Dance and I just listen to Magic Dance. I don't blame you, honestly. It's a, it's a it's, great song. It fucking rules. I will never get over just that one bit from the, the behind the scenes documentary where... I think it's Brian Henson is looking into the camera. So he's saying like, yeah, you know, my dad, he's, he's waiting on Bowie for these demos. And, you know, he thinks that like, you know, he's, he's, he's like, he gave him free reign and he's getting nervous. Like, am I ever going to get this music? What's it going to be like when I get it? And Bowie just showed up with like fully produced music featuring the <laughs> Harlem gospel choir. What you hear in the movie, he just went and did that. <laughs> and like so he just made that it, in a vacuum. Yeah. And what is, I mean, most of the music he made has no bearing on the plot. Either. <laughs> like, well, I mean, it, it does, but it doesn't. You know, like, like what do you, you remind me of the babe in what way? Like, what is that? The like, babe with the power. Who does that babe? Does does that little kid have a? He doesn't have power. He's just. I mean, he's a, he's an object of power in the sense that he is. <laughs> uh, he's the MacGuffin that both you know Goblin King Jareth and uh, and what's her name, Laura Lily. Uh, does he have voodoo power though no (laughs) (laughs) that line is taken from did we talk about this we did i think yeah it's it's taken from this random old dean martin movie yeah (laughs) that exchange oh we talked about it off mic we didn't talk about it in the film yeah so bowie is just like but it's taken from like like, a who's on first style like comedy bit yeah yeah power of hoodoo voodoo so Bowie's like, okay, we're making a movie musical about this, uh, you know, this maze, uh, to quote our friend Nick Long. Yeah. And maze uh, labyrinth. You got, you know, these puppets are in it. I'm playing this horny, evil man of of fantasy, and uh, I have to write the music. So, uh, man, this line from this random old Dean Martin movie is in my head. Let's just start with that. <laughs> And just go with it. it re- it's it- like you would think he would write like, you know, uh, I have this baby and I am the emperor and I. <laughs> nope. 
Not at all. Which, like, <laughs> I think speaks, it speaks to me to the fact that when asked about, you know, what's your sort of, like, take on Jareth? And he's like, yeah, I think Jareth would much rather be down in Soho having a cigarette and a night out. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, this is just sort of his lot in life, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it speaks to that. I mean, it also speaks to just how things have changed, where, like, the Barbie movie features a lot of music by prominent pop stars, and, and they... Right, uh, and it's incredibly literal. It's just all about Barbie. Like, yeah. I'm Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> the song. <laughs> yes, but it speaks to the kind of, like, alchemy, if you'll allow me to use that word, yes. of what's going on in this time, and what's going on in this film in particular, where it becomes this sort of, like, flashpoint of, like, you know... Henson, Monty Python, George Lucas, uh, David Bowie, like all yes, these things that have been mixed together in into this like very elaborate stew. And it, you know, somehow creates this wonderful, perfect film. You remind me as a babe. Babe with the power. Power of voodoo. Voodoo. I mean, it's crazy. There's Oz stuff in here. There's King Arthur. Alice There's, in Wonderland. You know, yeah. Old Where the Wild Flash Things Gordon Are. Serials. Yeah. And then next next year we get to Rob Reiner, who was like another like massive, you know, Billy Crystal, this whole like, yeah. you know, uh, like the world of comedy now enters the fray. Right? right. Like I think Flash Gordon and Princess Bride might stand as I think the two most important films that we covered during this era in terms oh, of their shaping of the current media landscape. I think the huh. I think the sort of like the action comedy of Flash Gordon in a sci-fi setting combined with the self-referential humor of Princess Bride that like edges into like sort of like parody or satire rather, the sort of like self-aware satirization of its own material while you are experiencing it. Right. Like right. I think these two things uh, and of course, the family-friendly, sanitized nature of Princess Bride. Th like, like that's the bulk of blockbuster filmmaking now, is those two things. Wow. Yeah. And then I would say the rest of our series kind of covers <laughs> everything in between, right? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I think, I think Princess Bride sort of shows up and is like, I think by the time you hit, you know, hey, this has become so commonplace that we can now successfully lampoon it on a large scale. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's basically saying it's got it's done, guys. It's it's fucking <laughs> over. You know, like if you're yeah. able to make space balls, Star Wars is dead. You know, like it's fucking done. And so the things we get next, Willow and Hook, these are the like you know, Willow is really the final gasp. It's the death rattle. It's Lucas coming back with Howard and sort of saying like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Daddy's home. Like we're gonna, you know, like- can still do this. We can yeah. still do this. Those things failed at the box office because they were trying to be Star Wars. Well, guess what, motherfuckers? I am Star Wars. And like, I'm gonna show you how it's done, you know? And 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 that's what you get there. And, and then I, I think Hook is the sort of, the transmutation into the- into what the 90s uh, will will hold and beyond. Okay, so 1988 is Willow, directed by Ron Howard. Uh, and the the dying, like, intrigue of, like, the return of the Jedi Star Wars, like, the, I don't think dying intrigue is the right way to say it, but, like, you know, that is such a momentous film. Yeah. And the attempts of Lucas 
to kind of recapture what happens in that movie in this different context and in this same thing of like, oh, I had this idea many, many years ago and now I'm finally going to do it. It, I think it starts like that domino effect of, of what, and like eventually makes him sell Lucasfilm to Disney. Of yeah. Like the domino effect of like the reaction to this film being, you know, we want more of this very specific thing. Lucas yeah. getting uh <laughs> getting to know his fan base in a more uh like aggressive way and, and eventually, you know, learning to hate them so much that like feeling as if his ideas like uh, that he can't do them in the way that uh that he wants to. And yeah. getting to that point of like, all right, well, I guess I'm just gonna throw my hands up. <laughs> you guys fucking hate me. I'm done. Yeah. I mean he Truly, like I, it really like that interaction really lights up here. You know, it's so funny that like, you know, his kind of biggest direct contributions during this series. We should we should kind of go down the like like let's just reverse back real quick and go down the okay. list. Like like all the films are in conversation with Star Wars, but he's actively involved in Dragon Slayer. He's actively connected to Dark Crystal. He's actively connected to a uh, never-ending story by way of Steven Spielberg, you know, mm-hmm. who uh, mm-hmm. who helps recut the film for American audiences. Mm-hmm. He's actively kind of connected to Labyrinth. In, you know, he's an executive producer on that film. He's got his he's got his fingers in the pie. Uh, and then Willow. Return and return. Oh, and to return, Oz. return to he, Oz. Sorry, I didn't, almost, I didn't I didn't mean to skip yeah. over that. Yeah, he he almost he almost takes over directing that. <laughs> it's crazy. And you know, if you look at, I think, Willow and Return to Oz in particular, it's so interesting to me that of the two of them, these are the two of the films that he's most connected to. Return to Oz is the one that's actually made by Disney, but Willow is the one that most feels like a Disney film. It's true. It's true. You know, he was uh, he was starting to trend on Twitter again. I think last night I was... Uh, Lucas? Yeah, somebody posted that, you know... It's because I think somebody there's this new thing of people saying like the way to fix Star Wars is to bring Lucas back, which I think we've we've spoken enough about on this (laughs) podcast about how fucking insane and amazing and hilarious that is. It's so funny that that's where we've we've circled back to. But uh, the response to that post was somebody being like, actually, Lucas never stopped making films. It's widely known. And he's said as much. Uh, you know, as, as recently as 2015, that like he has continued to make like short films, experimental films with his friends that he shows like to his friends. Yeah. And I just like, you know, I, I'm no longer employed by Hearst. I am, uh, I, I'm free to kind of chase any sort of creative uh, projects that I want at this point. And I don't have to, you know, uh, only work for one or two websites under the Hearst mantle. And so I've been thinking lately of like, okay, what are some like things I want to chase down if I want to, you know, get my writing published? I don't really see myself as a journalist and I don't want to be a journalist because I'm too self-centered and I just want to write about myself. But <laughs> <laughs> if there was one story that I want to chase down and pretend that I'm a journalist, that is the one. If I can please do this, you know, like someone needs Dom, to do this. You need, you need to do this 
and then I need to option the article and make the movie where it's like the journal, it's like the journalist seeking out his hero, you know, like end of the tour style, like you on the hunt for George Lucas. Like it's kind of I the mean, perfect thing. That is like the the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie that we all want of like going into the Lucas headquarters and and stealing that, that well, hard that, drive that, that, that has sorry to say, Dom, that is the literal premise of the film Fanboys, right, right, you know, is right. that they're like, we need to steal the Phantom Menace before it comes out so our friend can watch it before he dies. I want to see those movies. I do I too. Feel like, I feel like a lot of people would want to see them. And it's kind of, it's sad that he's like, you know, the fans will eat me alive. If I, 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 I imagine that's I part of the reason... Him. I don't. I don't oh, blame yeah. him at all. Of course, you know. And, and I mean, I also have no sympathy for a, a a billionaire who like wants to make his own movies. Good for him. He's fine. But I want to see them. <laughs> I want to see them too. I also wish I was in his position. I mean, I don't wish I had endured like forty years of you know dorks being mean to me on the internet. But like, I would. Uh, I would love the financial freedom to just like live in a, oh, com- yeah. a compound that is also a, a, a production studio <laughs> and just like make short films that I want to watch. Uh, <laughs> you, you do. Know. That sounds fucking You wish ideal. you had $5 billion. I really so do. I. <laughs> I really wish I had $5 billion is really what I'm saying here. Someone give me five. I, you know, I don't even need five billion. I just, I'm, I. Give I, me you one know, billion. Someone, someone please, for the love of God, finance these fucking films i'm trying to make (laughs) it's driving me crazy how hard it is to get people to give a shit about art somebody help please i will i'll give 4.5 billion away to to good charities and people that need it and then i can live happily making my own stuff and doing whatever i want for the rest of my life (laughs) and no one would hate me (laughs) sounds like a great deal sounds like a wonderful deal um (laughs) All right, Hook? so we did Hook. We covered Hook. <laughs> Hook is a movie that we covered. 1991. 1991. Wonderful film. Great film. Uh, one of the one of the movies that uh, later in this episode I'm going to ask you uh for our next mini series. Um what is Adam without the movies of that mini series? <laughs> and Hook is that for me. I don't know that I exist in the way that I am without Hook. <laughs> That's yeah. I think I I I I see it now, having watched it in in the same way that after we watched Sunshine for our last series, you said to me something along the lines of like, "I feel like I get you now." Yeah, this is your whole thing. <laughs> you make sense to me now as a person. Um, I I get it, man. I I, I do. I think uh, I think watching this movie, uh, there's there's a lot there that that crystallizes for me. Um, I do want to. I want to. I want to grab another quote from that encountering the impossible says um hook represents the epitome of robin wood's famously polemical description of the hollywood blockbuster as a process of cinematic infantilization (laughs) positioning the adult spectator as a child who loses him or herself in fantasy the film equates the joy at being in the world of neverland with the joy of being a child mediating the spectator's encounter with the alternative world through a narrative that aims to create a sense of the fantastic, not solely out of a desire or need to embrace an exciting and impossible unknown, but by offering a return to a familiar known that has somehow been forgotten or denied by reality. So much of that is like everything I'm trying to get out of like my creative projects. Yeah. Like 
just kind of uh, bringing back to life the feelings and and adventures that I, you know, I imagined as a kid. Yeah. And it's just so funny as I get older, I'm like, is that like, that's it? Like you just have these core experiences as a child or I'll put, I won't put it in the second person. I just had these core experiences and, you know, imaginations when I was a kid. And that's what I'm going to keep chasing forever. (laughs) That's all I am. I think that's most people. Yeah. You know? It's uh it's just contending with all that shit that happened at, at those ages, you know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it's how it goes. But this is another sort of, you know, element of the uh of of the piece here and sort of the shaping of uh of our current current industry, you know, even even in terms of the you know, because Hook itself is sort of like a pseudo adaptation, pseudo sequel, pseudo reimagining of the of the Peter Pan story, you know this idea of um, offering a return to a familiar known that has somehow been forgotten or denied, while simultaneously, um, you know, offering you uh, the the sense of the fantastic, you know. That's what sequels are, right? That's what all of these sequels that we the one are. It's the return to the familiar while also like transporting us to a fantastical place outside of our own reality. That is what a cinematic universe is. Uh, I I still, I mean, I hate that we have to use the words cinematic universe in relation to Hook at all, because I feel like Hook is a very pure thing. Um, yeah. If I was the age I am now in 1991, um, I probably wouldn't feel that way. I'd probably be like, Oh God, this, you know, garish, you know, over the top self-indulgent bullshit. This is going to ruin cinema. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine feeling like that about a movie as, as joyful as Hook. Um, But it's, it will never not be funny and insane to me that like from there Spielberg is, uh, is like, I don't want to live in cinematic fantasies anymore. Like I, I'm done with living in the fantasy worlds. I, you know, from from here on out, I'm going to make movies about the real world and how you know nightmarish it is, <laughs> <laughs> and how and how fitting it is that this film is, you know, the final piece of the dark fantasy, the dark fantasy era, mm-hmm. and it's you know an era that begins in reaction to Lucas and Spielberg and ends mm-hmm. with the two of them. Yeah, it ends with true. Willow and it ends with Hook. You know, it's, I mean, there are others. We made it really nice and clean for our purposes. We right? did. There are, <laughs> of course, other films, but it really if you not look at if you look at the too, major yeah. entries, it begins yeah, with yeah, yeah. you know it begins with Jaws and Star Wars, and it ends here. Peter Pan. Has it been three days? Tis true, Peter. Time does fly. So then uh, we skipped ahead. We entered our bonus realm. And we began with uh, David Lowry's 2021 The Green Knight. uh, A film we've revisited, uh, placing it in the proper (laughs) context with... uh, with with a, a fuller understanding of of what it was and uh and and where it came from. And I'm so glad we did. Me too. Uh, not just because I now own the beautiful A24. But mostly. Uh, <laughs> but mostly, yes. 
Uh, I feel like I have a deeper closeness and and uh, and a, a, a much closer parasocial relationship with David Lowry. Just <laughs> <laughs> another thing I was looking for. <laughs> Love that guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I certainly feel like I I I know what this film is far more clearly than uh, than I than I used to, and I I appreciate it even more as a result. And I will say, it does kind of make me feel like it is possible for us to revisit films on this show. A thing I had once sort of thought was a no-no. You know, I thought I kind of was like, maybe everything's one and done, but I don't know. It turns out there is more to learn and more to discover uh, in, in, in revisiting things. I'm not, you know, uh, over a year ago, someone wrote into us saying like, I can't wait for the next Xenomorph summer as though every summer we would just re-explore <laughs> we Alien. Gonna, and like, we I don't, I don't think we can do that, but like at the same time, I don't know, maybe there's a world where we uh, get face hugged again. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it seems we can to, just do it once more. What's the yeah, we could just have another Xenomorph <laughs> summer. Who knows? Um, no, I, I think those are probably pretty much spoken for, but I do think that some of these sort of one-offs we've done, uh, it could be intriguing to to cover them in other contexts. Yes. And of course, there are new alien movies on the horizon. We don't know if any of them are going to be any good, but we may do uh, a few of them. I mean, Fede Alvarez, uh, I trust him. I trust him with... with, uh, with mm-hmm. I tr- I, I'm, I'm excited to see what he has done with our, our, our large adult son, the Xenomorph. And uh, and Callie Spaney, who's playing the, you know, the Ripley-like... Uh, she just won Best Actress at the Venice Film Festival. So uh, for her, you know, performance in uh, Sofia Coppola's Priscilla. So, you know, there's there's talent on this. All right, I'm in. I mean, I was in just <laughs> the mention of the Xenomorph. Yeah, that's all it more. took. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we did the Green Knight and uh, Green Knight. Good movie, fun bonus. Fun bonus absolutely uh, exists in the Excalibur universe, or uh, rather, mm-hmm. ex- exists because of Excalibur. You know, you were sort of saying, like, oh, I think I get Excalibur more now, having seen, yeah. you know, Green Knight. Like, they come from the same place, not just because of the Arthurian thing, but the films are their buddies, I think. And the Green Knight himself, I realized recently, uh, bears. A striking likeness to, striking resemblance to um, the the spooky uh, goblin man from Return to Oz. Oh, he's not a goblin man. What's he's the goblin. King. Is he a goblin? Oh, the oh, gnome is he king. A goblin king. The gnome, the gnome king. king. Yes. Yeah, you're we right. Had gnomes, the, had the, the Green Knight definitely. Uh, yeah, he's got a yeah yeah a carved a carved beard. Right. Yeah, he's great. I love him. I yeah. want to spend more time with him. Um, I'm interested in playing this tabletop uh rpg it would be it would be fun with the the movie yeah what's that like i think it's i think they give you some rules that yeah i think it's basically like a DD campaign where you get a pre-made character sheet um i'm under the impression it operates on 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 uh, a rule set very similar to dungeons and dragons but you would have to select from a from a group of it Green comes Knight with pre-made it comes, yeah it comes with pre-made characters um and a pre-made storyline and a pre-made storyline yeah so there is there a dm you'd still need a dm to sort of guide the players through that story huh. um but i believe it is essentially like a a dnd campaign with uh with with pre-made people you can play as i i mean i do think that yumi and steven hilger uh should definitely play 
play D and D. Um, but maybe this would be a good entry point for you. Yes, I mean I'm interested. Is uh, so now moving on to uh, uh, the Northman from 2022, Robert Eggers. Yeah. Uh, is there a uh, a, a Northman? Is there a Northman RPG? tabletop game? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I mean, I there don't, could I, be. Why not? They, right? they, they, to, they totally Viking. could be. Yeah. yeah. But but I think you know. Green Knight getting its own tabletop RPG is is in many ways it's sort of saying like we are an eighties dark fantasy film like yes, you have to truly, read us truly. in this context because right. we have our own tabletop RPG right Northman on the other hand I, I think is aware that people are going to compare it to Conan and like that that it wears oh, that yeah. you know proudly yeah um, but it is. It is more of a Conan the Barbarian than an '80s dark fantasy, I guess, if that makes sense. Although it's it's a barbarian movie. It Not is many. It, yeah, we only did one barbarian movie. Yeah, but it is a. It, it has sorcery. It has magic, and aesthetically, it fits neatly into this place. That's like, true. There was, true. you know. So like I watched all these movies on, you know, hard copy on physical media. Most of these things come with digital codes. So I, I, I end up having them on my like, you know, Apple TV or whatever. And so I'll, sometimes I'll skim through like a moment or two while I'm writing my scene, uh, just like on the Apple TV. And I like turned on the TV the other day and it had sort of like, you know, has all the things that you've been watching, click here to resume or whatever. And it had a still frame from where I left off Northman and a still frame from where I left off Green Knight. And they looked exactly the same, you know, <laughs> like they, truly like it's just like these are films that exist in the same universe, the same like, you know, these are the same kinds of stories being told in similar ways. Yeah, and I think Eggers and Lowry are very similar filmmakers. I mean, to the extent that people often get, yeah, they've got commonalities I mean, for sure. Yeah, those two uh, they mistakenly assume that one has made the other film. <laughs> sure. Um, and uh, two of our best, and we got them both. We got them. We got. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, and then and then we wrapped it all up with uh, a film from this year. Uh, a new release, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Honor Among Thieves from John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. The first of what I assume will be three, at least. We'll see. I mean, the film definitely underperformed. There are plans to do a Paramount Plus TV series, or at least there were, but... Yeah. You know, you never you never know uh, what could happen. And I think all the streamers uh, are being forced to recognize the fact that pouring millions, if not billions of dollars into programs that cannot have direct return on investment, only um, stability of subscription fees, uh, you know, maybe not the most intelligent business decision. And, uh, you know, making feature films that perform well, with audiences is actually a smarter move. Uh, so it's entirely possible that we'll get more Dungeons and Dragons uh, in theaters after all. But, you know, who knows? It seems like the fan response to that film is just getting better and better. I think it's it's grown on on video on demand and, and, yeah. and Paramount Plus. Yeah. I think there'll be, there, there will be sparks of interest uh, for it as the years go on if if there's not a a, a sequel announced um i mean all three of these films from this this modern era 
you know, they wouldn't be dark fantasy films if they didn't <laughs> underperform in theaters yep. and, and find a wider audience on home video, which is what happened with all three of them. I think only this one anybody wants a sequel to. <laughs> I'm not sure what the Green Knight 2 looks like. <laughs> Once the dead man is revived, we can ask him five questions, at which point he will die again, never to be re-revived. Were you killed in the Battle of the Everhorse? Yes. Four more questions, right? Yes. No, 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 that, that wasn't for you. Did that count as a question? Yes. Damn it. Only answer when I talk to you. Okay? Yes. Why did you say okay at the end of that? I didn't. Fantastic. Where's the shovel? As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Well... I think it's time to close the book. We we should, but we just we just we should also say that I, I you know I think that Dungeons and Dragons really is sort of like the the best one can do in the confines I think of what the industry has become in the wake of this era. You know, yeah. If you if because because it's a this is a blockbuster film. You know, Northman has a big budget, but it's not a blockbuster, and Green Knight is you know decidedly not. You know, it's a it's an expensive and and beautifully done film but like you know i think on a scale of art film to blockbuster northman sits somewhere in the middle but this is a true blockbuster dungeons and dragons you know and it's, and it's seeking to be one and i think it is sort of doing uh doing about the best job you can do at, at being that kind of movie i think there have been a lot of attempts to recapture the high fantasy blockbuster franchise um very recent attempts too and there will continue to be. I'm not sure if any any of them have learned the lessons in such a, you know, thoughtful and sensitive way that that this movie has, you know. Yeah. Um and you know, time will tell if there's another movie like this that is a like a pure high fantasy film that is successful. I'm sure there will be more. But it's great that this one exists, and it's it's uh, such a good coincidence that it happened this year, right, as we're doing this series. Yeah, it worked out nicely for us. <laughs> yeah. So the book is still being written, of course. Yes, but, um, uh, but this aware. chapter is over. But I think it might be time to open a new book. <laughs> open Don't a new book. You're going to do this. <laughs> I mean, hey, you, you gave me the setup. 
Mm -hmm. What book do you want to open next? Give me one second uh, to just load a clip here. (laughs) This is the tape I found downstairs. It has been a number of years since I began excavating the ruins of Kandar with a group of my colleagues. Now my wife and I have retreated to a small cabin in the solitude of these mountains. Here I continued my research undisturbed by the myriad distractions of modern civilization and far from the groves of Akademi. I believe I have made a significant find in the Kandarian runes, a volume of ancient Sumerian burial practices and funerary incantations. It is entitled Naturan de Manto, roughly translated Book of the Dead. The book is bound in human flesh and inked in human blood. It deals with demons, demon resurrection and those forces which roam the forest and dark bowers of man's domain. The first few pages warn that these enduring creatures may lie dormant but are never truly dead. They may be recalled to active life through the incantations presented in this book. It is through recitation of these passages that the demons are given license to possess the living. Hey, what'd you do that for? It's just getting good. I just don't want to hear it anymore, that's all. Yes, listener, that's right. It's time for us to open the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, the book (laughs) of the dead, bound in flesh and written in blood. How would that translate in podcast form? Should we make microphones out of human skin? I don't know if you can make a microphone out of human skin, but we could maybe do like a, well, you could do like a ribbon microphone and the ribbon could be like a little Uh, little strip of flesh. You know, maybe that's... Maybe that's how you could do it. The microphone it. of the dead. Or we could just record in like a, a deeply haunted cabin in the woods. We could we could record in a deeply haunted cabin or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, kind of like a pseudo nod to Evil Dead Rise mm-hmm. here. But we could, uh, we could, we could export one of our podcasts onto a like vinyl record that is made of compressed human bones. Ah, so we could etch ourselves like. into human bones. That, I really like that idea. Uh, so yes, Evil Dead. We've yes. we've done uh, we've done um, Living Dead. We did right? Living. We we've, did we did Zombies. We did George Romero's dead. of the Dead films. Yes. So we've 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 done we've dead. done Hell. We've, we've done, done Hell. Cold Hell. <laughs> yes. But now it's time to raise the Deadites. Uh, well, so we're raising the dead again. What's different? They're, you know, they're, they're demonic spirits. Uh, you know, they, uh, they may inhabit the living, but, uh, you know, they're, they're like horrible, disgusting That's demon true. monsters. And not all of the dead and the Romero dead are evil. Some of them are, are just goofy little guys. Some of them are goofy little, some of them are just sort of pipsqueak troublemakers. That's true. Then again, there, I, there's quite a lot of Pipsqueak troublemakers in this series. That's true. That's true. That's true. And some, yeah, some of the some of these deadites are goofballs, and they just want to uh, uh, vomit into your mouth. And uh... <laughs> okay, Adam. So we're doing the Evil Dead movies, um, just as the doctor prescribed. And uh, so, so what are who who are you without these movies, Adam? Uh, Our listeners no want to know. I'm no one without. I don't know. <laughs> what what happened to you that that these movies? When did these movies happen to you to make you who you are? These movies happened to me uh, <laughs> when we were uh, 
when we were when we were at uh, when we were at university when we were, when we were college students, okay. uh, and I began to find myself interested in in films. I got mm-hmm. infected uh, where. <laughs> You hear, you start hearing people talk or about possessed. Evil Dead. You got possessed. I was, I was possessed. Yeah. Someone opened the Book of the Dead. Right. That's yeah, much better. In my proximity, and they they read the very evil words uh, inscribed in human blood within, and uh, it awakened within me a, a dark spirit that uh, inhabits me to this day. Ah, very good. Yeah. Are you, are you dead? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm already dead. <laughs> you, so you are dead. And sure, are you yeah. Evil? Uh, you know, that's a matter of perspective, right? <laughs> no, uh, but basically, you know, as as I was sort of starting to um, find myself more interested in film and filmmaking and learning about the these cinema. things, the, the cinema, uh, you know, Evil Dead was sort of described to me as this, you know, this madhouse nightmare made by a couple of freaks in the woods for for ten dollars and ninety nine cents, and you know, uh, I became very enthralled by that idea, and I I put the film on one night, and uh, and I've I, yeah, I just never looked back. Um, these films are just some of my absolute favorites uh, of all time, and have uh, yeah, absolutely sort of influenced how I how I look at films and, and how I make them. Um, I'm very attracted to the idea of the the scrappy group of of buddies going out and just mm. making something uh, deranged. I sense that we will be talking a lot about the scrappy buddy atmosphere, you know, the, the, yes. the, the, the buddiness of these, the, the feeling that this is made by hand with care yes. by a bunch of goof, goofballs is part of the appeal. It is. It's very um, much part of, uh, it's part of the secret source of these films. And I think that, uh, you know, Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi and everybody in here, they kind of create a new thing with, with this strange indie they do you know like practical horror yeah like not not quite uh you know zombies not quite monsters somewhere Mm -hmm. in between they invent their own kind of terror uh (laughs) and they invent their own kind of tone really you know the the series the tone of the series evolves over time you know evil dead is really this more kind of straight horror film and as they go on, they embrace these other elements of the other things that they are influenced by. And uh, it becomes something like pretty unique, um, often imitated, but but never, right. but never, no one ever really nails it in the way that these guys did. Question is, is uh, Multiverse of Madness going to be a bonus? No. So why don't we, why don't we run down the lineup <laughs> <No>. here? <laughs> it's not going to happen, folks. I'm sorry to tell you. So we are going to begin with The Evil Dead, the one that began it all. We'll follow that up with Evil Dead 2, the sequel remake adaptation of The Evil Dead. <laughs> uh, either that or it's proof that Bruce Campbell had two of the worst vacations anyone has ever had and suffered about <laughs> an amnesia in between. Uh, we'll follow that up with Army of Darkness. Then we're going to cover Drag Me to Hell, Raimi's only true return to the horror genre after making the Evil Dead films. Very good. One could argue Darkman fits into that category as well, but we need to save that for another series. Right, 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 right. 
And then we'll cover Cabin in the Woods, Drew Goddard's uh, film that sort of interrogates, why do we like Evil Dead? What's that all about? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be uh, an interesting one to do. And then we'll round it out with the uh, the the true sort of, you know, sequels slash reboots to, to Raimi's work produced by Raimi. Uh, it'll be 2013's Evil Dead from Fede Alvarez and Lee Cronin's Evil Dead Rise from 2023. Oh, and it's going to happen right during spooky season. What a time to be alive. What a joy. What a time to be alive. Um, and we are calling this series Eye of the Duck Necronomicon. Very good. Love the name. Love the series. Excited to... Uh, you know, I, I feel like I almost, I think I managed to hook pill you. With, oh, I'm, uh, I'm pro hook, you know. <laughs> I mean, look, it, 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 I have never been more likely to love a movie like Hook than, I, than, than right now, uh, you know. Like the, the more, you know, I, I've said this before and I'll say it again, but the more bland and uninteresting like major filmmaking events mm-hmm. become, the more I am intrigued by and enthralled by beautiful uh you know seemingly disastrous mistakes like hook (laughs) to be clear i don't think it's a disastrous mistake i think it's a a highly interesting and enjoyable film but um i have never been more uh more excited by films like that than i am in this moment i mean in the past 10 years or so of my life maybe a little bit more i've kind of had a, a journey into horror it's become a big part of you know uh, my my taste in media these days. Evil Dead is it, it has has not been all that much like part of that story yet. Yeah. Seen at this point, I've seen the trilogy. I love the trilogy. Um, I am baffled by the trilogy, and I th- feel like that's where the story ends for me. Like I I don't have enough of a background or a, an an understanding of what's going on other than like. These are some really fucking weird approaches to <laughs> practical horror. And uh, I think that's a great starting point for me to get into this. I mean, it's exciting for me to like start with that and see how much uh, I can learn and, and find in this stuff. I'm so, uh, I'm so curious about the nature of the production. I think that's so much part of the story here. It is. It is. It's. I mean. It's. Uh, it's so fun. The the anecdotes about making these films. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they, they are uh, as zany as the films themselves. Uh, to the point where it's like, you know, what would make for a really good movie? <laughs> it's a movie about making Evil Dead. You know, <laughs> that's like a good pitch to me. Yeah, in the same way that like Greg Nicotero is is about to go and make, uh, or you know, I mean, strikes notwithstanding, uh, is is uh, is is allegedly going to direct, write, and direct a film about the making of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, I, I, mm-hmm. I guarantee you, at some point, we will get a film about you know Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell uh, going to make Evil Dead. I love that idea, and we, I mean. So there's also 30 episodes of Ash versus the Evil Dead. Yeah, I don't How think are we gonna there's a way for us to conceivably cover that. Um, that show is really fun. You know, it's it's streaming. Uh, I think it's on Netflix these days. It's sometimes on Netflix. I don't know. Um, that becomes kind of its own thing. And it doesn't have 
the it doesn't have the Raimi factor mm, beyond okay. the first episode, which is and it's and it's a TV show. So those two, right. the fact that it's 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 only Raimi for one episode, and the fact that it is a TV show, I think for me, kind of, uh, I don't think it makes sense for us to cover in this series. I'm sure we will be talking about it uh, in some way as we sort of talk about like. Ash as a character and his like many appearances, um, you know, between uh, between the original three Evil Dead films, um, maybe covering My Name Is Bruce uh, and uh, Evil Dead twenty thirteen, you know, there's five Ash appearances and there's there's the TV show. Like he has now said he's officially sort of I've retired the character. Ash is no more, <laughs> but you know he's is the biggest part of, of Campbell's career. You know, uh, the Ash Williams of it all, uh, looms large and, uh, Hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's just that it's just too unwieldy, I think for us to cover that whole show in its entirety. Like that's its own podcast. I want to watch at least the pilot. See if I can get myself interested. If, if it really sticks with me, I will, uh, I will fight you to do an episode, a bonus on it. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I'm 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 definitely not objecting to to doing an episode on the pilot. Maybe not an episode on the whole series, but definitely on an all episode thirty on the episodes. Pilot. Yeah, I mean the um the the pilot also is interesting because I think the first season of the show they only have the rights to make a sequel to like some of the films, not all of oh, them. Really? So there's all this stuff where like they've changed like imagery and they've like renamed things and and they can't reference certain events, but there's a bit of a sort of winking and nodding in the camera, sort of like, you get it, you know, like it's, uh, it exists in a really interesting place in that regard. I mean, I feel like it's, it's going to have to be a big part of our conversation that, the pilot is directed by Raimi, written by Raimi and, and his brother. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, uh, so I yeah. Uh, right. Tom Speziali is the other writer there. Yeah. Um, the, the brothers Raimi are a part of this, this whole story. Right. Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, I, and I wonder if some other bonuses will somehow find them way, find their way into they this. They tend series. to, they, they yeah. always, they always do. Um, <laughs> I mean, one one thing that'll be fun to talk about also is just sort of like the weird kind of, um, you know, in, in the early days of Raimi's career, the kind of weird way in which uh, he is connected to, uh, you know, Bill Pope and the Coens. And uh, Bill Pope, of course, eventually becomes, you know, a, a Raimi guy, a Raimi DP. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just this... Uh, oh, and also... Um, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, uh, who who shoots the first couple of Cohen's films, like he's he's also connected to to this group of of characters in these early days, uh, and it's just cool. It's just cool that all these guys kind of came up together, and it's fun to explore that history. I mean, it also looks like uh, there's a De Laurentiis, a Dino De Laurentiis. There is, yes, there is. Yeah, <laughs> I think um, when we get to Army of Darkness, I think De Laurentiis uh, he pushes back on Raimi wanting to call it Medieval Dead. Uh, which would have been good. a perfect name for the yeah. film. <laughs> Army of Darkness is amazing too, though. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. There you have it. Next time on Eye of the Duck, Evil Dead. One book closes, another opens. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a similarly dark book, but this one a bit more dark, I guess you would say. Yeah. Dark in a different way. 
Um, and I'll also just throw out there because it feels uh, wild not to mention it that uh, I think uh, you are outnumbered in the sense here, Dom, that uh, the the Eye of the Duck team, uh, myself and, and Path, are both obsessed with these. Um, this is this is also a big one for uh, for our good friend Path. Hi, Parth. Thank you for all your help, Parth. Thanks, Parth. Um, I wanted to, before we close it out, I yeah. just wanted to read this one really good letter we got from a listener. Mm. Um, a listener by the name of David. Uh, Hello, David. Uh, we've, we've, we've gotten a few uh, uh, form submissions on our website, and it's great to hear from listeners. If you're not in the Discord, that's also a good place to share your thoughts and but you should join us in the, in the conversation yeah but it's always good to hear from you you know as always thank you for listening thank you for supporting the show yes thank you for rating and reviewing and subscribing everyone in the discord thank you for keeping the conversation on our episodes going yes thank you um, this series has been a lot of fun for all of us and uh exciting to see where the the podcast is going next anyway got this great note from david and David was writing in about our Highlander episode. And mm. to uh, to paraphrase what he's saying here, he um, says, I watched the film again last night in preparation for your show, and I was so pleased to hear you say many of the things that resonated with me. As 80s kids in the UK, we were obsessed with Star Wars and Indiana Jones, no surprise. So the weird echoes in this film, both visually and narratively, have subconsciously plucked a chord in our collective movie dreaming. And here's what I like right here, what he says. What I mean by that is how much we played our internal hero fantasies to the characters we saw on the big screen, literally in the games we played and the toys we played with, but equally and more profoundly in our dreams and subconscious creation of ourselves. As one of you pointed out, the visual bravura of the film from the bonkers car scenes, the weird sound cut, etc., the constant lightning is so arresting and lingers on in the memory. It is unforgettable. It is bonkers. And he goes on to, to write more about the scenes that he loved, and I paraphrase some of that. But um, great to hear from a listener who yeah. resonated with this series in the same way that we did. <laughs> It, and, and and that's so uh, that's so well said or well written here. It's that. really really well said, and it's 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 great to get some some insight from someone who was also living through this experience. And uh, I think it speaks to the films and how kind of like how loud they all are. That like yeah. we in you know thirty forty years later for some of these films are watching them and feeling what was felt at the time. Yeah. And I think we we kind of landed on this place I didn't expect us to of the subconscious of these movies, mm -hmm. the subliminal nature of them, the style. Yeah. That is part of the allure. And that that was one of the lasting, you know, effects of these movies that we continue to explore week after week after week of just how subliminally like powerful they tend to be. Yes. Because, because in part, because they encourage you to awaken and engage with that part of yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. I think one of my key takeaways from this series, just the number of these films that are encouraging you to fantasize, yeah. you know, like, I don't, I think it's an element that is missing from 
culture today in a big way, especially when you think about, you know, you you were joking, like, don't go and watch The Green Knight Explained. But like, so much (laughs) of culture now is, let's try and nail down exactly what this is in the clearest terms. Explain it away. Explain it away. And this is a series that sort of, you know, encourages you, hey, just just play, you know? Yeah. Just play. And and that, I think, again, is part of why, Dom, you have successfully hook-pilled me, because that is a (laughs) film that is ostensibly about the power of play, the power of fantasy. And, you know, mm-hmm. even if it has this sort of like strange thing of, you know, I'm an old man, but I'm a kid. And like, I don't know where I exist in between these two spaces. Like, as long as you can play, you're alive. And I think that uh, films of this era, if they have done nothing else for you, listener, I hope they've encouraged <laughs> you to uh, to imagine. Our dreams and subconscious creation of ourselves. I love that. Love it. Thanks, David. All right, on that note, shall we close the book once and for all? Let's do it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We want to hear from you. Tell us about your Eye of the Duck scenes. You can find us on all social media at Eye of the Duck Pod. Email us at contact at eyeoftheduckpod.com if you'd like to join the conversation about movies, movie scenes, and all things film. Find an invite link to Eye of the Discord in our show notes. And... As it is the end of a series, uh, we we don't often say this uh, loudly, and maybe we should say it louder, but uh, if you've enjoyed any part of this series or any part of our show generally, it really would mean the world to us if you could go ahead and open up that uh, that Apple uh, podcast application, give us a rating, give us a review. Uh, we'd be eternally grateful. Please, we're begging you. Please. Only takes a second. <laughs> You can find me on the website that we used to call Twitter, sometimes at Dominic Nero, or on my website, always at DomNero.com. And you can find me on social media at Adam Vol. that's V-O-L-E. And you can watch my films online at AdamVolerich.com, that's V-O-L-E-R-I-C-H. The main soundtrack in our episode intro is the theme song from Conan the Barbarian. The audio cues are pulled from a handful of films that we cover in this series. And the music you're hearing right now is Finding Neverland, a composition by John Williams on the soundtrack of Hook. And our logo was designed by Francesca Volrich. You can purchase her work at francescavolrich.com slash shop. This episode was edited by Eric Gunnison. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Eric, as always. Thanks to Parth Marate for providing research for this episode. Thank you to Chase Sterling for the Blu-ray Corner theme song. And thanks to Nick Long for help with programming this series. Maybe we'll meet again, Nick. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. And thank you to all of our uh, incredible guests for this series. Oh, uh, yeah. We're very grateful to all of you. Thank you to Sarah Welch Larson. Thank you to Nick Long, our resident Oz expert. Thank <laughs> you to Philip Gawthorne, who joined us for uh, Highlander. Thank you to Elena Urquhart, who joined us for Labyrinth. Thank you to Desmond Thorne, who joined us here for Willow. Uh, stay tuned for announcements regarding Willow if you are in New York. And thank you, of course, to uh, Stephen Hilger for joining us for Dungeons and Dragons. What a series, folks. What a series. Next week, it's going to be Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, which you can stream with a subscription to AMC+, or you can rent or buy from your favorite video on-demand platform. And the next time you watch a movie, remember to keep your eye on the duck. Grandpa? Maybe you could come over and read it again to me tomorrow.
as you wish. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to I the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.